If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full-time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views unless they are totally closed-minded a-holes. I am not here to tell you what to believe. I am here to encourage you to think beyond the check. Welcome to this podcast where we talk about work, life, and the meaning of our time here. You'll hear from a wide range of business people from multiple backgrounds. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Dr. Alana Ackerson to Beyond the Check. Alana is the Chief People Officer at financial technology startup Figure, was previously a VP at SoFi, and served as CEO of the Teal Foundation, among several other, several other investment-based leadership roles. In addition to earning a degree from Stanford, she has a doctorate in faith and technology from San Francisco Theological Seminary, where she and I met briefly while serving together as trustees. Uh, Alana, welcome to Beyond the Check. Thank you, John. I've been looking forward to the conversation. Okay. I'm honored to have you here today. So I know you know many of, of the people I've had a chance to speak with work at really cool companies, and you uh-huh. do, and we want to talk about that. Um, but uh, you are the only one thus far who has a, a degree that is theology-related. And uh, specifically, I, I don't think any of my listeners have probably heard of a degree in faith and technology, much less a doctorate. So can you talk a little bit uh, about that? What compelled you to uh, pursue this area? And then we'll circle back to figure and some of what you're up to now. Sure. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation. So, you know, I, I started my career in finance and um, was in a few different areas within asset management and investment management, and um, but in parallel was always interested in pursuing a work in theology, spiritual direction, um, and ministry. And so I was running a parallel track and uh, first got a master's in systematic and philosophical theology where I looked at the impact of life extension technologies on our faith narratives. Mm. And I studied to be a spiritual director while doing that, and I thought a doctorate in ministry would be a nice combination. And the reason I picked the faith and technology focus uh, for my dissertation was I was spending a lot of time in in tech world, right, in Silicon Valley, and people were building extraordinary things, but I wasn't hearing in the way that they were talking about their work a lot of context around the why, they the why they were building. But what you could pick up is very specific language that indicated intentionality, that mm. indicated a desire for solving certain problems, right? And it sort of begged the question of, you know, is, and this was the question of the dissertation, is the development of newer and better technology fundamentally a very faithful act, widely defined beyond a specific religious doctrine or, you know, belief system in that it is how we as human beings express hope for a better future for humanity. It's how we participate in creation, as co-creators, right? And within the Christian tradition, there is a strong um, sort of strand of thinking around this idea that we have been made as co-creators, right? Mm -hmm. And we are invited to participate in the unfolding um, of the world. And so, you know, I thought it was a really interesting question to examine and to spend time on. And, you know, there's one quote I do want to share because I love how it mm-hmm. how it captures this. And this is by W. Brian Arthur, who wrote The Nature of Technology, which is a great book that goes into this why do we create technology question. 
And what he said was, to have no technology is to be not human. Technology is a very large part of what makes us human. Technology is part of the deeper order of things. But our unconscious makes a distinction between technology as enslaving our nature versus technology as extending our nature. Mm. And this is the correct distinction. We should not accept technology that deadens us, nor should we always equate what is possible with what is desirable. We are human beings, and we need more than economic comfort. We need challenge. We need meaning. We need purpose. We need alignment with nature. Where technology separates us from these, it brings a type of death. But where it enhances these, it affirms life. It affirms our humanness. Right, And so this, again, goes to, as I see what we're building at Figure, as I see what my friends and colleagues are building all across the valley, I see it as the way that we participate, again, in that co-creation, that we are truly human, right? Mm. We want to build. And, and, and the reason I think we want to build is as a, a faithful response in the world is one where we are active, where we are working toward a, a restoration and a redemption of creation, right? Um, and, and you know, I think that that is seen very clearly when we are creating and building things. Yeah. Any surprises from your research? You know, it's, um, it's, it's one of the most interesting things is this whole idea that um, there are um, lines in the sand in terms of what is um, – palatable by society at points in time, right? It's sort of there, you know, we should not go beyond here because there be dragons, you know, over there. Mm -hmm. And as if that's something that is an absolute. And and so you can go through and you can see over the ages how that absolute through um, better understanding, more information, a deeper um, knowledge of what it means to be human begins to change and shift, right? And so some of the prize surprises were the evolution of scientific facts, right? Um, the evolution of an understanding of how we as faithful um, beings in community can understand new technology. And, and technology is just a term, you know, it's, it, it comes from technique. Right. So that is a tool of some kind, but it's also a process. Technology is just the way we do things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as we have a better understanding of who we are as humans and our own capabilities, the way we do things will change. And the hope, again, is that we are doing things in a way that is life giving and solving the big problems that we see in response to um, the the challenges and the the pain in the world. So to that end, and looking at, at big challenges and opportunities in the world, where yeah. does Figure come in? Tell us a little right. bit about the company right. now. So Figure is a great, uh, for me, you know, in building Figure, it's been great to combine the finance and the technology background. Um, so Figure's primary mission is to build and promote blockchain solutions to eliminate rent-seeking and facilitate innovation in financial services, right? So right now within financial services, you have um, a ton of intermediation, Right, where people will come in and take a piece of the pie, either from consumers or investors or various institutions, in order to mediate information, to be an authority on that information. Right, um, and so one of the first things we've created is Provenance, which is a blockchain protocol for the origination custody, trading, and securitization of whole loans and other assets. And what that does is it it streamlines the process of transacting assets, right? Um, and it makes everything faster, transparent, right? Um, and, and it really de-risks 
the financial space, right? Which is key for so many reasons. Um, you know, every time we have a major financial disruption, um, that impacts each individual because it impacts their ability to provide for themselves, for their families, right? It impacts the resources they have available to them in their lives to do that good work we were just talking about, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, one of the exciting things about blockchain technology is, you know, it's distributed, right? So everyone sees the same information. So it almost democratizes information, which I, I think is always a good thing. Um, it's immutable, right? So um, you timestamp that information and no one can just come in and change it. So that's part of the making it um, less risky, right? Because mm -hmm. it's harder to commit fraud and more people can trust that that information is correct. And it's trustless because it means you aren't paying someone to be that arbiter of trust. If everybody sees it, um, there is no need to um, negotiate trust between two counterparties, mm -hmm. right? And so those are all very um, – that's, that's a huge development in financial services to be able to build a marketplace based on those characteristics. Um, and, and we created a lending business – um, to be the first to generate assets to put on provenance instead of the, if we build it, hopefully they will come. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to be the first mover and really lead the charge on what's possible. Now, Elena, you were uh, early at, uh, at SoFi, which I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about and probably refinanced student mm -hmm. loans or mm -hmm. home purchases, other things. Uh, tell us a little bit, how does SoFi compare to Figure and, and you know, what advancements have, have you been part of now? Right. So, you know, SoFi is also another groundbreaking financial technology company um, that was founded by my co-founder here at Figure, Mike Cagney. And, you know, SoFi tackled a, a big problem, which was student loan refinancing, um, and, and also approached it from the idea that there are ways to um, streamline um, the process of receiving this type of consumer credit. Um, and so, you know, Figure is approaching a much different market. Mm -hmm. Figure's approaching the home equity market to begin with in terms of our consumer lending business, which is um, a massive addressable market given that a lot of people in the U.S. own homes. And for a lot of people, the majority of their net worth is locked up in their homes, mm -hmm. right? So they're house rich and cash poor. Right. Um, and that is problematic if they're underfunded for retirement, if they want to do a remodel, but the available, you know, sort of um, home equity products are, take, you know, 30 days for approval and, you know, or 30 days for funding, a lengthy amount of time and, you know, kind of a laborious process. And so we've done a few things that are really interesting. You know, the one that I am most excited about, and it seems like a simple thing, but transforms the experience of someone trying to get this type of a loan is instead of having to go into a notary to get the documentation notarized, we're doing that online sort of an e-notary process, right, mm -hmm. where you can um, do a video call with someone from our team and go through that notary process. And there are only three states right now who have passed legislation to allow for that, mm. uh, Nevada, Texas, and Virginia. So it's a very new piece of technology. Um, but again, the better way to think about it is they've decided to be more efficient, right, with how we go through that process mm -hmm. by allowing us to use digital tools to do it virtually, um, without losing any of the um, necessity to get certain information from a customer and be able to validate that that information is true. Okay. Now, our, our listeners consistently tell me they enjoy hearing about earlier background of people's okay. lives. So tell me, you know, go back as far as you'd like. First job. 
first job. I I think my first job was working at a small um, advertising agency. Um, this was actually before I went to college, and I and I think what I found so interesting about that is much of what I found interesting about later projects in life was how how does a narrative come together mm. that is compelling that resonates with someone's identity? Um, you know, how do you represent information in a way that is accessible um, and is logical and and you know fits with people's lived experience? Yeah. How so? Were you like eight years old when you did that? No, or? no. I think that was more <laughs> okay. of you know sixteen, seventeen, okay. right? Yeah. And what was that environment like? Was that uh, you know I've been around ad agencies some as well, and it wasn't yeah. like Mad Men at all. What was the experience? like No, for you? it wasn't. It wasn't. It was fun. That the head of the agency was a bold and boisterous woman who was very sharp um, in the field of advertising, and you know. Um, it was really fun to learn from her how to unpack certain ideas um, and how to empathize with an audience um, and how to understand how to segment an audience so you can be responsive to individual needs, which I think is an incredible ability to have in so many things if you really have a servant's heart, right? And mm-hmm. and on the Enneagram, I'm a hard helper. I'm a hard two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for someone who has... Um, who's, who's really, um, wired that way. You're always looking for the best way to support people, to engage people, to respond to people's needs. And, you know, whether 16 or, or beyond, what, what were some of the, the careers you were considering as you uh, prepared to head to Stanford? Oh, um, or however, you know, even as yeah. a, a very young child. Well, well, as a very young child, I wanted to be the lead singer in a rock band um, that that wasn't really based in reality, but that seemed exciting at the time. Did you have a rock hero at the time, or shero? Either one. Was there a band that you? Uh, well, you I was really a child of the the early eighties, yeah. and so Gem and the Holograms was ah. was was definitely the exciting uh, the exciting show to be watching as a young girl. Um, and so that was, I think that may be what inspired that. You know, but over the years, it's a lot of different things, but it's largely what's presented to us. You know, as a mother of young kids, what I'm finding interesting is you, you hear fewer people ask at the schools they're at, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And more people asking, what problems do you want to solve when mm-hmm. you grow up? And there's such a fundamental difference in the spirit of that question. What you want to be has to do with, you know, more of a sense of um, self-actualization, which is important, but also about what you as an individual are experiencing Mm -hmm. as opposed to how you are being in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And certainly the idea of what problems do you want to solve I think is is definitely something that that implies community, mm. implies duty, implies participation in that co-creation, yeah. as we talked about. So I find, you know, with young kids, it's always so much more exciting to say, what problems do you want to solve yeah. when you grow up? And then you can work backwards into interesting professions, you know, that someone can focus on so that they they can make concrete an identity of a person who solves those kinds of problems. What a great question. I, yeah. I What's your earliest memory of seeing a problem in the world you wanted to solve and you know, working toward that in your career? Yeah, so I, um, I I was really fortunate to, when I was at Stanford, 
do a summer away in India for an organization that I had gotten connected to called um, Opportunity International. Mm -hmm. And um, they had a branch office in Bangalore. And I went over there. It was really to um, document um, loan recipients in the field, help them with their annual report, do a few things that were, I I hope at the time, additive, you know, to their work. But for me, it was an incredible um, opportunity to see firsthand how fundamental services can really transform um, the the family um, structure, can transform communities. Um, and, you know, globally, a big issue is access to capital, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it certainly was um, not that long ago that access to capital prevented people from being able to um, take care of their families, from being able to self-actualize through anything vocational, from being able to transform communities through better education, better health care, um, better commerce systems. And so, you know, Opportunity International was a microfinance organization that offered mm-hmm. micro loans, very small loans to individuals to essentially become entrepreneurs. So you could offer, you know, I, I think the average, um, um, was, you know, the average loan was about $100, right? Mm-hmm. And for $100 a year, you could help fund a small um, sort of dairy, you know, a, a goat dairy, or you could fund a small um, sewing operation. And and so the, it was amazing to see um, how little was so transformative. And um, I guess that was the earliest, um, even before I started my more formal career, I guess I was in consumer credit, yeah. right, through that. And I've stayed engaged and now sit on um, the National Board for Opportunity International. So before fintech was even a term, you were out there. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Before fintech was a term, um, opportunity was looking for ways to um, participate in, you know, mobile banking Mm -hmm. um, where possible. Any any stories of of loan recipients that come to mind? I'm I'm sure there are many you've encountered through the years, but anyone that stands out a little bit. You know, there's there's a theme Mm. um, that stands out, Mm -hmm. and one was, you know. how empowering it would be when um, the wife of a household would take a loan. And that actually was Opportunity's focus, particularly early on, was access um, to capital for women um, because they were um, very inclined to invest back into their children's education. Um, there was such a sense of duty to the community for them to be good stewards of that capital. Mm-hmm. Um, the women would create little trust groups where they would help loan to each other and support each other in the repayment of their loans to Opportunity. Um, and so what was transforming was watching how that gave women in rural areas a voice they didn't have before hmm. um, because they were now entrepreneurs. So I can you know, hear passion coming through loud and clear. And for many of our listeners are, even if they're in their second or third act, are trying to figure out what's next, trying to figure out how to add more meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was your process of understanding the meaning of work? And you've mentioned co-creation, et cetera, but what, how has the meaning of work evolved for you? Right, right. So it's, it, it, you know, there's kind of the macro and, and the micro, you know, at a macro level, um, it's about, um, as we talked about kind of the, the unfolding of creation, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's sort of a very, you know, Augustinian view that God created the world and then stepped back to rest and observe, mm-hmm. you know, and then the world spins and, and we're all kind of, um, 
you know, actors in that. Um, you know, and it's a very different take to see it as an open and ongoing unfolding. And, and, you know, there's an interesting theological idea of it being a grand improvisation, Mm. um, right. Which, which is a little art and a little science. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but you know, my, my vision of God is one that is, you know, actively engaged and present, a persuasive God. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, the meaning of work is how we respond to that persuasiveness, how we respond to that sense of participating in that unfolding, mm-hmm. you know, and, and on a more macro micro level, excuse me, it, it's really about how you want to show up every day in your life. Mm-hmm. Where are you investing your time and your attention, right? Um, and, and what projects are worthwhile as part of the unfolding of creation, which projects seem to be in response to um, those pains of the world, you know, that we talked about earlier. And sometimes it's not immediately obvious, mm-hmm. but behind every piece of technology and every process, there is ideology, there is intentionality, right? As I talk about figure, it's about opening up, almost democratizing, certainly streamlining, making more efficient, and hopefully um, less risky financial services, which underpins everything we do in commerce and how we interact as human beings mm-hmm. and how we build as human beings, right? And so figure very much, you know, the, the philosophical underpinning of it is one that I see as being very life-giving to community, right? And to human processes and how we, how we do mm-hmm. work. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, and, and from my master's where I looked at life extension technologies, one of the most interesting things is, you know, the reframing of the time horizon of the work we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, the narrative used to be back in the day, you know, if you were lucky, maybe you'd live to 30, 40, mm-hmm. you know, life was short. It was very, very hard right? In a lot of ways, um, people might or might not procreate, they might or might not be able to provide for extended family, community, you know, and you would pass away. And and the narrative was, that's okay, because then you you go to heaven, right? And Mm -hmm. it was all, and it also did imply less of a real investment in this creation, in this world, right? This, um, the idea of looking so much toward, you know, um, the eschaton that you, you weren't really invested in this creation, as beautiful as it is, right? Um, what happens if we live to 150 hmm. or 300 years, right? That fundamentally changes that narrative. It isn't life is short and hard, but then you die, and then there's the afterlife, right? And this is something that all religions will need to um, come to grip with in terms of that, that larger religious narrative, yeah. right, as part of their tradition. If you live 150 years, 300 years, what kinds of projects do you invest into? Mm. I see it as an incredibly exciting thing mm-hmm. um, that as we um, be able to um, slow down cell decay and we live more healthy lives as human beings, it allows us to invest more deeply into the things that matter to us, to um, see the fruits of our mm-hmm. labor over a longer time horizon. And again, I do think it is very clarifying to to then step back and say, if I'm if I have 150 years to to build, what mm-hmm. would I build, right? If I'm going to be in community with the set of people for 150, 300 years, how do I engage them differently? I think it fundamentally changes everything. Yes. Now you mentioned earlier that among your other certifications, you became a spiritual director. For I'm sure some of our listeners are 
you know, aware of therapists, et cetera. What is a spiritual director? And as we think about these big questions you're asking, like what if we have 150 or 300 right. years, how does that come into play? Right. So, you know, I, I think there's the perception that therapy is, is problem solving, mm-hmm. right? You sit and then, you know, a therapist, a counselor makes um, recommendations, um, does something that's prescriptive, mm-hmm. right? Um, spiritual directors have been seen as, um, as spiritual um, companions, in a sense. We accompany people as they attend to the presence and experience of God in their lives. Um, it is about holding space for someone to discern, to feel the movements of the spirit, to, um, respond to a sense of calling Mm -hmm. as we've been describing it. Um, and, and the, the spiritual director doesn't so much prescribe something as make offerings of things they are observing in Mm -hmm. that moment in those people. Right. Um, and so that, you know, there's something qualitatively very different about not only the, the work, if you call that way, but but how that space is held and what is assumed about that space. As and I know you wear many hats as a as a founder here as well, but as chief people officer, how does that lens impact the way you look at how you build out the organization and the people you interact with as as they consider their own sense of direction and your consideration of their fit at figure? Yeah, so so when I first sat down with the early team as we were thinking about what kind of organization we wanted to build, you know, it was very much about how do we how do we prioritize um, investing into culture early on? And culture is kind of this amorphous term, but mm-hmm. really, you know, and practically it can be just creating um, a space where people can do their best work, right? So how do we support our team? How do we create an organization with the right norms, with the mm-hmm. right values, right? Um, and it can be everything from be direct when you communicate, Show up as your whole whole self, mm-hmm. you know, and be very direct about what you see and what you don't see. Um, you know, it can be about holding people capable, right? Assuming that they are um, making a, a real effort to participate in what we are building and that they are capable of so much, right? And so there are certain things that, that we, we mapped out very early on that, you know, look different at a company in the first few days of its life mm-hmm. than than how they look, you know, a couple years in. And will look different when you're 10 people than when you are, you know, 250 people. And I think that's something that is challenging for any organization is that question of scale, maintaining um, a culture. It's not going to be the same, right? Because every new person that joins the team changes the experience of that team, mm-hmm. changes the makeup of the organization, and impacts how you work right? How you collaborate. Um, but can you consistently pull through those same values, those same intentions, those same norms, um, as you scale? And that takes a great deal of, um, vigilance and, um, intentionality from the leadership team. It takes a commitment and, and people being consistent, you know, about that commitment. Now you've, you've mentioned some common threads through your life, including early exposure to financial inclusion, We've hinted around this, but do you believe in callings? In callings. I, you know, it's interesting. When I was a young girl, my father always said, you know, Alana, look for ways to make a maximum positive impact Mm -hmm. in the world, right? Think about um, the scale of the problems of the world. Think about 
what talents you've been given, where you come alive, right? Um, where you are effective in this world and look for that intersection, right? And so I think, you know, with callings, it's about a self-awareness mm -hmm. for where you can be impactful, um, from, for where you are most authentically yourself And again, where that, and this is sort of a common question people ask, and where does that intersect with the needs of the world, right? Yeah. And and that very much is a way to think about calling, right, yeah. um, that I think can be very powerful. So your your father was asking the same questions that now people are asking with you. It sounds yeah. like around uh, considering problems in the world instead right. of just what do you want to be. Right, mm. right. How You talk a little bit how your faith was shaped as, as a young person and You know, to, to the extent you're comfortable sharing kind of how you would describe your spirituality now. Right. So my mom um, was incredibly um, uh, contemplative, um, came from a Greek Orthodox background, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so one of the things, and, and so that was something that I'm deeply rooted in um, and informs um, my more contemplative seasons of life. But it's interesting to really see life as being made up of seasons, right? And so right now, I would say I'm more in a praxis-focused season mm -hmm. of life um, and less contemplative because there is so much work that I'm doing. There are so many ways that I am doing that good work, that I am participating in building within creation, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is how my energies are focused and are being channeled right now in my life. Um, and that is definitely more of my lived experience right now than in other seasons. Mm -hmm. And as you live in this time of, of so much action and, and work to do, how do you stay centered? Are there spiritual practices that help you? Yeah, there, you know, it's, it's, it's always a question, right, for people to identify which spiritual practices um, resonate the deepest with them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I, you know, it, part of it is influenced by um, having young children and inviting them into some of those that are accessible to kids who are only a few years old. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, they, they won't quite get the idea of gazing, you know, at iconography, um, but they do understand being in nature. Right. Um, and, and so it's a question of connecting them with the splendor, um, and serenity of creation, um, mm -hmm. and creating a space where things quiet and they can experience themselves as spiritual beings. And so I think that as, as my family carves out time, um, that's something that we do quite a bit of. Yeah. Have there been any seasons in life when it felt like your faith was tested or just that were, you know, especially difficult valleys? Yeah. So I think with anybody, you know, when you go through extreme trauma, right, it, it forces a question of, um, you know, sort of the, the question of what theodicy mm -hmm. you hold, right? And, and um, theodicies um, are many in the world. And that is, you know, how you explain where God is in the midst of human mm -hmm. suffering. Or it's a question of, you know, it's the theological question of why is it that we suffer, right? Yes. What is the meaning of suffering? And, and you know, there, there are many that are well known, you know, Calvin, you know, sort of um, proposed that suffering was um, the, the, the result of us being sinful. You know, C.S. Lewis saw suffering as a soul-making exercise mm -hmm. and a gift in that way. Um, 
it, it's interesting how when you go through your own suffering, um, how you respond to those different theodicies, um, you almost sort of start trying them all on very quickly to see which one um, seems to make any sense at all. Um, and so my husband and I lost a little boy, our first child, mm. um, in labor. And that, you know, I mean, that broke us. Mm. It really did. And, you know, as I was sitting, you know, on the bed in the hospital, um, the priest who married us came in and, and you know, asked, where is God right now for you? Um, it was an unexpected question. But as I sat there, the, the, the instinctive answer was, God is sitting here sobbing with me, mm. right? And it's interest, it was an interesting answer for me because as I reflect back, it very much was in line with the theodicy I had decided um, most f- was most in line with my lived experience in the world when I was doing my master's. Mm. Um, I took an uh, excellent course with Professor Greg Love mm-hmm. at San Francisco Theological Seminary on God and human suffering. And, you know, we, we looked at um, the work of a variety of theologians in this area. And the one that I really um, thought was incredibly um, nuanced and authentic, again, to my lived experience was Wendy Farley, who put forth this image of a suffering with God, mm-hmm. right? And I always thought that seemed to be so real to me. Yes. And the idea that God was sitting on that bed sobbing with me um, definitely showed that my, ex- you know, w- the expression of that in my life was that of a suffering with God. Mm-hmm. As you, you know, looking out a year, whatever time frame that you would like, what are some some goals you have for yourself, your family that uh, that you know tie into your faith. How do you you know how do you set them, and ultimately, how does that tie into how you define success? Right. So I, um, you know, it's it's always tough to to try and crystallize that specifically ahead of time because you're always surprised. Um, by as you try and do what's better and then better and better as living into the best, right? You know, and the same with doing the next and the next and the next in life as part of that building, that progression, you know, of your life's work. Um, You know, it's unclear what the paths are. You just, you make yourself ready, right? You make yourself ready and you make yourself available. Um, You know, and, and it's amazing how opportunities will present themselves that you have not expected. Um, There are a few things that I hope for. Mm -hmm. Um, And one specifically is, you know, looking at the work I've done on, you know, faith and technology um, and why we build and the meaning of our work and what that says about what it means to be human. Um, I would love to find ways to sit in deeper conversation on those questions and to engage a broader community um, on those questions because I think it does inform what we build, right? And I and I think that as the pace of technology quickens, mm-hmm. um, the the pervasiveness of certain processes reach you know everyone around the world. Um, it's going to be really important to make sure that we have a strong, um, I guess, I- ideology around technology that's rooted in faithfulness. Um, to make sure that, again, as, as that earlier quote from The Nature of Technology said, that, that what it is that we're building and how we're using it affirms our, u- our humanness. I want to thank you for giving us some big questions to think about uh, for me and for our listeners. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.